And as they do that, I am going to prepare to read you a children's story. This is from the Please and Thank You book. This is what you get for having a pastor with young kids. This is my reading for the week. This is the story of Pig Will and Pig Won't. Mother Pig had two little pigs, Pig Will and Pig Won't. Whenever she asked them to do something, Pig Will said, I will. But Pig Won't said, I won't. If Daddy asked them to play more quietly, Pig Will said, I will. But Pig Won't said, I won't. When Mother asked, will somebody please empty the wastebasket? Who do you suppose said, I will? One day, Daddy said, who will come to the boatyard and help me work on my boat? Pig Will said, I will. Guess who said, I won't? So Daddy and Pig Will drove to the boatyard to work. And Pig, will, and Pig Won't stayed home. Mother Pig stayed in her room all afternoon writing children's books. She paid no attention to Pig Won't. He had no one to play with. He had no one to talk to. Pig Won't spent a very boring afternoon. But everyone at the boatyard was working together busily, having a good time. And Pig Will helped Daddy paint his boat. He helped Bananas Gorilla build a banana boat. He helped Sally Bunny varnish her water skis. Willie Bear hoisted him to the top of the mast on his sailboat. There, Pig Will fixed the wind vane. Hard workers get very hungry, so everyone stopped to have ice cream. Oh dear, somebody forgot to bring the napkins. When Pig Will got back home, he told Pig Won't about the good time he had. Suddenly, Pig Won't began to understand that work, especially if you are helping others, can be lots more fun than doing nothing. I must stop saying I won't all the time, he told himself. Well, the very next day, his mother asked if someone would help her sweep. Right away, Pig Will said, I will. Right away, Pig Won't said, me too. From that day on, Pig Won't has always been called Pig Me Too. <laughs> what did you learn at church today? A bunch of pigs, right? I want to talk to you today about your will. About your will. We've been asking this question, who are we becoming? And I want you to ask yourself the question today, Am I becoming the type of person who willingly does what God wants me to do? We've been looking at Romans 12 too. I feel like a lot of us are going through difficult times, uh, or at least the world is in a difficult moment. Our country's in a difficult moment. People are divided. Everything, the coronavirus, everything, you know, it just doesn't seem right right now. And I, I believe that people are in a moment of transition Right? They're in a moment, they can be in a moment of transformation. And I think as Christians, we have to lean in to making sure that we are transformed into the type of person that God wants us to become. And so we have been focusing on this passage here in Romans 12, 
where we are told not to conform to the pattern of this world. In other words, don't do what everybody else is doing. Don't become like everyone else that you see, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, uh, the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about transforming the mind, that you actually have to think differently. As Christians, our primary thoughts have to go to the gospel. It has to go to a self-sacrificing Jesus on the cross who rose again, who we know is good, who we know is reigning, who we know is on the throne, and who we know is still at work even in a world that seems chaotic. And we have to allow our feelings to believe that. Like we have to feel what God feels in all of that. And so we want to be guided completely by, by basically the mind of Christ, thinking on Christ and then taking on his mind as well. And then it says, uh, the second part of this verse, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. One of our goals as Christians should to be to carry out God's will, but not unwillingly. We willingly want to do God's will. It's better to want to do God's will than to not want to do God's will and do it begrudgingly. You can only really keep that up for so long. And so I want to talk to you about the will this morning. Uh, the will is the part of you that actually tells you what you want to do. It's maybe even could be described as, as the human spirit. It's what kind of motivates people to do whatever they're going to do, kind of be who they're going to be, go go about doing the things that they are going to do kind of long-term. It kind of makes up their character. The will and the character are not the same thing, but you see a person's character when they act on their will on a consistent basis. You get to know who that person is on the, on the basis of them acting upon the will that they have. Our wills are meant to belong to God. They are meant to belong to God. And if our wills belong to God, basically what the scriptures teach us, if your will belongs to God, what you will do and the type of person you will become, uh, you, you will do good things for the right reasons if your will belongs to God. On the other hand, if your will does not belong to God, basically what the Bible teaches is that you have a corrupted will, like you are a, a corrupted person. And even that the good that you do, we I talked to you about this a couple of weeks ago, that you can do good things apart from God. There are plenty of people who do good things apart from God, but, but they are still corrupted. A lot of times they're even doing them uh, with corrupt instincts and for corrupt reasons. So they're not doing them out of a love for God or an actual out of love for other people, but they might actually be doing it out of a love for self. And so when you get to Romans 3, what you discover is in Romans 3, Paul is quoting Isaiah when he, Isaiah says, like, no one does good. And it goes on to say, like, even their good deeds are, are filthy rags. The idea behind that is that even our good works or the things that we do are good are often stained by evil apart from God unless our wills belong to God themselves. And so what Paul calls us to be after he explains all of this in Romans, he gets to 12. Chapter 12 is like, now this is who you're supposed to be, not only as an individual, but as a church. 
He starts to talk to the, to, the, to the church, like this is what the church should look like. This is how individuals should behave in the church and who, this is who they should become if they are, are a part of the church. This is kind of what, he ends up, what ends up happening in chapter 12. Chapter 1 through 11 is all about the gospel. It's all about what God has done for us. Chapter 12 is how we should react to it and what it should do in our life. You understand the gospel if you allow your mind and your feelings to get caught up in God. And what he has done for us and Jesus Christ, you will become a new, trans, a new person. You will be transformed, right? The, the, the theological word for this is regeneration. You'll, you'll, you'll be regenerated. You'll, be, you'll become new. And you will feel new and people will see a new person. You'll be becoming a new person. Now, this person that you are becoming is a person who is like Christ, who looks like Christ. None of you will ever be Christ. Christ doesn't really take away or take out our personalities. We continue to have the similar personalities, but rather our personalities are transformed by the gospel and by the likeness of Christ. This means that as persons out of our personality, we do the will of God. And this ultimately is who... <laughs> Or, or what Jesus portrays to us in his own life. As we look at Christ, Christ is the one who always does the will of God. And not only that, I, I want to show you something here. I, I want to show you in John when Jesus illustrates this and what he has to say about his father. But he says, the one who sent me is with me. In other words, God is with me. God is with you, by the way, as well. Uh, as you, he's with you in this room and he's with you as you walk and talk, as you go about your day and as you think on Christ. And Jesus says, he has not left me alone. You are not alone. And here's what he says, for I always do what pleases him. Now, Jesus always did what pleased his father. And this is the goal of all of that, that we all have. Right? Jesus willingly did the work of God. And to be honest, like that's, that's the type of people that we want to be. We want to be people who willingly do the work of God. And in Jesus, we see God at work. If you become like that, in you, people will see God at work. And so Jesus in no way was ever corrupted in, in, in ways that we are corrupted by the pattern of this world. And so Jesus doesn't, never lived a life of corruption. He was never corrupted, but he was always doing the will of God because that's what he willingly did. And his will was transformed in such a way that he did God's will. Now, Paul is not Jesus. Because I know what some of you are thinking is that, well, that's Jesus. That's the son of God. He has an advantage. And it's true. <laughs> right? I, I mean, he does. He, he, he's got an advantage there. He was the only sinless person. Uh, his, his will was different than ours to a certain extent. But Paul, on the other hand, is just like you and I. Just like you and I. Paul, on his road to Damascus, he has this conversion experience where Jesus uh, appears to him and says, Paul, you have to stop persecuting me and you need to follow me. And what happens subsequently after that is, is Paul is regenerated. He's transformed. And this is one of the ways in which he describes it and kind of what takes place during this regeneration or transformation that took place in Paul's life. He, he describes it like this in a number of different ways here and, and all throughout Galatians. But I want to read from Galatians 2.20. He says this, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, he was, put death, he was put to death with Christ at his conversion once he realized and understood what Christ had done for him in the gospel here. And he said, it is no longer I that live, but Christ, but Christ who lives in me. And now I live in the flesh, now the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself anymore. 
my flesh does not live. Christ lives in me. And so he crucifies the sinful nature of his flesh, the corruption that is in his flesh. And now he says, I have decided to live for God. Now, this is strange here. You've maybe heard this before. You've seen this. You're reading this in your Bible. And and just kind of don't let this get lost in you because one of the things that Paul calls us to is to no longer live according to the pattern of this world. Well, the pattern of this world is not to die to your will. The pattern of this world, right, is to do what feels right. It's to react on the basis of however you feel or think at the moment, whether or not it is from Christ or from God. It's to react on your basic instincts. And what Paul has said is, I have put anything to death in me that doesn't willingly do what God wants me to do. Paul crucifies the flesh because he knows if he doesn't, he will not avoid corruption. And so he changed his, his, his life was changed by Jesus and by the gospel. And he knew his life needed to change. And so in this moment, as you are here, I've been asking this question for us, like the big question behind this series is, is who are you becoming? What in your life right now needs to change so you can become more like Christ. What are you willingly doing right now that you know that is against God's will? People may not even be able to see it. From the outside, you may look really clean, you may look really good, Uh, things may even seem to be going great from people on the outside. But on the inside, there's something wrong. Paul, he was one of those guys who was upright pretty much in every way. I mean, he, he was one of those guys, I'd like to say, that was good at being good as far as the outside world is concerned. He was... He, had, he was part of basically kind of an upper social class. Right? He, he, he belonged both to the Jews and yet he was a Roman citizen. He went to the best schools, all of those sorts of things. I mean, Paul kind of had it made. He had big goals for his life. Very intelligent man. And basically what Paul says is, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna die to all of that. Like, I'm, I'm not going to care about that anymore. Instead, I'm going to live for God by faith. I'm gonna put the death, I want to put the death to anything that shows how proud I am or how arrogant I am. I'm gonna put it all to death. Jesus shows up actually in Paul's life and he tells Paul that you are actually working against me. Paul was persecuting Christians because he didn't believe Jesus was was Lord and Jesus shows up and he says, you know, Paul, you're, you're working against me. And he eventually reveals to Paul all of his pride and all of his arrogance. We see that in his writing where Paul talks about like, I, I don't count like any of that as gain. None of that is worth anything to me. I'm not gonna hold that above anybody's head. 
He crucified any desires that he had that were against God's will. For us, I guess another way to ask this question is, what do you desire more than God? What in your life right now do you desire more than God? Do you desire to have more than God? Do you desire to be more than God? Maybe it's a, a, a certain degree. Like if I just get this degree, like I can put this on my wall, uh, people will think I'm smart. I, I, maybe it's wealth. If I just get to this income bracket, like it's going to change my life. Maybe it's acceptance, success. It could be to be seen as good. I think that's kind of Paul's, maybe even Paul's motive. Recognition. Now, not all of these things are bad, but what we see here that if you, those are the, the predominant motivators in your life, right? they need to be crucified so that you can put Christ in its place. And what Jesus actually teaches, and, and Paul as well, is that's actually how to live a full life. You can pursue all of these other things, like those things can take over your will, but it's just, it's just not what leads to life, is what Paul said. Paul says, I have to crucify all of that. Jesus says, you're going to have to take up your cross and, and follow me. In other words, like, you're going to have to crucify your flesh. You're going to have to crucify anything in your life that you are putting before me, that you desire more than me. Anything that you are more motivated to do than to follow me needs to die. This is what both Paul and Jesus teach. And this is extreme. This is pretty extreme here. But, and I think the world would say this is extreme. But kind of the, the spiritual principle here that Jesus gives us, and that is in the gospel, simply this, is that death leads to life. You ever think about that? Like death leads to life. I think we avoid that in our culture as much as possible. We don't want to put anything to death. We definitely don't want to put our wills to death. But death leads to life. I'm reminded of this uh, during hunting season. I like to hunt, right? You don't have to like to hunt, but I like to hunt. If you don't like to hunt, you don't understand this principle, all right? No. no. If you're anti-hunting, you don't understand this principle. But one of the things that takes place during hunting, because I'm not a farmer, Right? I have a little garden that doesn't count. But that once living organisms are what give you life. Do you realize that? If, if I go out and if I shoot a deer, I'm going to harvest that deer. I'm going to put that deer in my freezer. I'm going to eat that deer. That deer is going to give me life. Without that deer's death, I have to go harvest something else or go buy something at the store that has died so that I may have life. Even if you are a vegetarian, this is true. You're not eating deer, you're not eating beef or what, whatever you eat, but a once living plant died so that you could live. This is the principle there, that death leads to life. In the gospel, Jesus' death leads to life. We get the grace that we don't deserve from God so that we can be whole and right with God. Not only do we know that and can we praise God for that, but it doesn't end there. Jesus' death 
is the reason that we know that we can have life after life. Jesus rose from the dead. So the disciples are in the upper room, right? And what they see is that they see a resurrected Christ. They witnessed Christ who had died and was risen. And what's interesting about the build up to the cross is what? When Jesus goes to pray, what is he praying? It's incredible. He says, Father, if you would take this cup from me, please do that. But what does he say? Not my will be done, but yours. But yours. Jesus had no notion of a will apart from God's. And Jesus is calling all of us to put to death the pattern of this world that is inconsistent with a living, living according to his. And if, he says if we do, he promises us life. On the other hand, if you don't, right, it, it only brings death. I want to give kind of just two dangers here of not transforming your will this morning before we kind of get to a conclusion here. Because this, this sounds, it's just, it's just, it just so, sounds so weird, but there are dangers of not transforming your will, of not really taking that, ser- that question seriously, who am I becoming and giving God your will. So you may say to yourself, right? Well, at least if I do what I wanna do, I'm getting to choose for myself what I wanna do. And this is really only partially true. Uh, if you read evolutionary biologists or psychologists, Right? I'm not asking that you read into all of that, but here's, here's my point in this, is that they are telling us that we aren't really making our own decisions. Right? Is that your basic instincts are having you make the decisions that you make so that you might preserve the life that you have. And those instincts have been passed down to you, and so you're kind of predetermined, and those instincts are kind of hardwired into you. It's kind of interesting. Now, the Bible teaches actually something kind of interesting or similar, but in a different way. Not evolutionary biology, but follow me here. That a natural person, this is what the Bible teaches, that a natural person is set on choosing, that the natural person who is set on choosing all things for themselves without, without considering God's perspective on it is actually a slave to themselves. And so in the same way, if you are acting out of your natural person is what the Bible teaches us, you are actually just a slave to yourself. Your actions are predetermined. And the point, of the, the, point the Bible is trying to make is that you will eventually get to the point that if you are always choosing for yourself and if you haven't allowed your will to become God's will, you will eventually get to the point where you can't choose God's will anymore. You'll become that type of person, the kind of person who can only choose what only chooses what you want and not what God does. And what C.S. Lewis and, and many other Christian writers have ended up saying about this is that this leads to a type of hell that we live in. And so C.S. Lewis and others will actually they write from a perspective often is that it isn't as much about getting sent to hell as choosing hell. People just choose to walk into hell because they can no longer choose the good that God has for them because that's the type of person that they have become. So given the choice, heaven, God, or hell, they have lived so long with choosing hell, they don't know how to choose heaven. They don't know how to choose God. 
now. Seems kind of abstract. <laughs> so to get a little more personal, right? to live a self-willed life, you may be getting what you want and you may be setting things up in the way that you want them. And so let's say that what you really want and what your will is telling you to do is to achieve success. Like if I just achieve success, it'll satisfy my soul. And what you mean by that is what you really want is personal fulfillment. And so here's a question for you. If you don't, if your will hasn't aligned with God and, and you aren't willingly doing what God wants and trusting that he will satisfy you in that, do you know anybody who is satisfied by success? Right? I remember Tom Brady saying something to the effect after, I think it was his third Super Bowl victory in 2005. I'm not real sure. But this is what he said. He said, there's times where I'm not the person I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? And yeah, obviously, some text. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater for me out there? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? Right. Fulfillment doesn't come from success. It comes from God. Maybe your desire is to primarily get married and to have kids. What you probably really want is you probably really want somebody who's just going to kind of love you unconditionally. Well, do I have news for you? No. But <laughs> that's impossible without God. It is. On the other hand, maybe you just want to be single and free to do whatever you want kind of already went over this, but in reality, all you really are is just a slave to your whims. You're a slave to yourself. You're not free to love. You're not. Anybody who is unconstrained, able to do whatever they want, whenever they want, right, is unable to love another person, is unable to sacrifice for somebody else. In a time like this, and when times get difficult, it's really hard not to do or say things that just ruin relationships and break relationships because you have an unrestrained soul. Maybe your instincts are just, I just need a big house, I, I, I need this, I need that. And what you really are saying is I need security, I need comfort, or I need stat status. And none of that will satisfy your soul. Only God will bring those things. You won't ever get what you want apart from God's will. You just won't. You have a God-shaped hole in your heart and in your life that will only be satisfied by living for God. So one of the dangers is that you won't get what you want. The second is that you will deceive yourself. You will actually deceive yourself if you aren't living according to the will of God and you haven't given your will to God. This is maybe the most difficult part of the message to understand, but here's what you do need to understand. It is really hard to understand your heart and your will. It's really, it's hard to understand this part of yourself. It's hard to see this part of yourself in yourself. Jeremiah 7, uh, 9 puts this fairly well. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Right? The heart and the will, all of these things are intermixed here. And he says, who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, the point Jeremiah is making here, it is really hard to see who you are. Yet God knows who you are, even though you may not. 
and if and think one way while acting another. So this being the case, right, it's best to just give your heart to God and hopefully he'll sort it all out. But let me illustrate how this happens, I think. And probably the easiest way to illustrate it in the way that Jesus actually illustrates this most in his gospels. And it probably makes most of us really uncomfortable. But this is how I'm gonna do it. Jesus says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Jesus talks about finances a lot. And I, and I think this is probably the Ill, easiest way to illustrate this here. And so I want to illustrate this by the way that I think it seems like in my interactions with people, how most people view their own generosity, right? So I, I think most people, and I could be wrong about this, this is, right, Josh's inexact uh, uh, science here, um, but I think most people, if you were to ask them if they are a generous person, they would tell you yes, right? They would say, yeah, I'm pretty generous. I help my brother out. I do this, I do that. I give to the man the homeless man on the street or whatever it might be. But the truth is, doing a decent amount of research, uh, the average American gives about 2.1% of their wealthy way a year. And and so it's unlikely uh, that the average American, at least, if you consider generosity above the 2% mark, is generous. But my guess is that every time you pass the homeless man on the street and you give him $5, like you're pretty, like you might, yeah, hey, that's pretty good. Like I'm a generous person. I've done a good deed. So in the church, we're constantly encouraging people to be generous. We want people to be generous. And we encourage them. We encourage you by giving to the church, by giving to the body of Christ. That's one way that we are generous. And then we want to give away to others and we want to pour in back to you and all of those sorts of things. So we encourage 10%, not because 10% is uh, the thing that you have to do, not, but it's just, it's the tie. That's what we see in the scriptures. And we see it's a good starting point. If you can't start there, start lower. If you don't care about the church, if you're not a part of the church, right? Give 10% away somewhere else. But, but we encourage 10%. Now, just because though, as Jesus is pointing this out here, just because you give 10% away, right, doesn't actually make you a generous person um, in the way that Jesus would have you to. So here's the catch. It's easy for some to give away 10%. So it's much harder for some to give away 10% than it is for others to give away 10%. And so Jesus basically teaches just because you give away 10% doesn't actually mean your heart is right. And so that's why like, we encourage people to give away 10%, but just because you give away 10% doesn't mean you're actually doing it for the right reasons and, and that it doesn't, doesn't, it's not like the marker that you have to hit or whatever that might be. And so Jesus teaches that some are able to give 10% without batting an eye while also ignoring some very other important problems here. And so Jesus gives a series of woes in chapter 23. He's calling out the Pharisees and and religious people um, who have used their religion to actually become very bad people. And here's one of the things that he actually says to the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You have been but you you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, so in other words, like you should be giving, you should be generous in this way and figuring out how to give and all of that. 
but without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain the gnat, but swallow a camel. Now what's interesting about this is the Pharisees have no idea, right? They think they're doing the right thing. Here, they think they're generous people because they're giving away 10% of their income. But Jesus says, you have neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And like I said, this is a more difficult part of the message, but I do think we need to be thinking about this. And maybe there's somebody who needs to hear this uh, that's listening. But when you think about this, and even in the own moment that we're living in right now, and even what's happening with COVID, and, and, and you can blame it on the shutdown, you can blame it on whatever you want to blame it on. But really, this has been happening and it's escalating right now. It's been happening since the 80s and it's escalating at a faster rate right now because of the current situation that we are in. The wealthier are getting wealthier and the poor are getting poorer. It's happening. This is not an endorsement of any party. This has been happening for almost 30 years, for 40 years, right? There have been plenty of parties in power, but this is happening here. And Jesus is saying, be aware of these things to the Pharisees. And to be honest, as you look at charities and so forth, giving trends are reflecting this. When you do the research, it shows that 1% of households give 49% of the individual giving. Charities are having to rely more and more on wealthy donors, right, to make ends meet. Now, if you're a part of the church, here's what I tell you. I do not consider myself a wealthy person. I take Jesus's call to give 10% away seriously, whether I make a lot or a little. And Christians in general do better than other people if you do the research as well as far as giving, but it's still not great. We make it like three, almost 4% on average here. And I'm not bringing this up to be clear about any political bent. Like, like I said, everybody, this is not, no party has helped with this. The reason I bring this up is because if there are individual Christians in here, right, that has an opportunity to be in a position where they can help to make sure that you're lifting people out of poverty or you're protecting people's jobs as much as possible, that you do that. If you are wealthy, if you are in those positions, right, look long and hard of what it really means to be generous. This, this used to be like a, something that the evangelical church stood on. Uh, John Wesley, when he was preaching through Britain, this isn't even part of my notes, right? He was there on behalf of the coal workers half the time. Like they hated him for saying things like this because Jesus said things like this. So in other words, like we can be blind. My point is, is that we can be blind to certain things. As a follower of Jesus, right? We can blind ourselves to the people that we are becoming and the things that we are doing. And Jesus here is pointing out my question. It might have nothing to do with, with finances or anything. But is there a point, right, in this message where Jesus is pointing out a blind spot in your own heart? You see, we want to do God's will. God's will is good, it's pleasing, it's perfect. In other words, it's satisfying when we do God's will. In Romans, we are told that we can discern God's will. And the reason we want to be able to discern it is because we can do it. And when we are transformed, we will want to do it. 
We will want to do it when we are convinced right, that God is good and that it is the best thing for us. God does not care about the outward shell. He doesn't. He doesn't care about any of that. What he wants is he wants your, he wants your will and he wants your heart. So that's my challenge to you this morning is to give him your will, to just to, to willingly want to do what God wants so that you can discern it. Romans 1 or 12, 1 says this, therefore, and this is how we're gonna do it this morning. Therefore, I urge you brothers and sisters in the view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so here's basically what God is calling us to do. Offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, if you want to do God's will, you have not been doing God's will and it's time for you to do God's will, you have to surrender your own will. You have to give God your will. You have to be a living sacrifice. You have to crucify your own will. You have to get it to God, give it to God. You have to let God be God. Right? Worship flows out of your surrender to God. Your confidence flows out of your surrender to God. You believe that God is good when you surrender to God. And I cannot promise that when you surrender to God, that life will be easy or everything that will go as planned or that all your dreams will come true. It didn't for Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, right? They didn't for Paul. When you read about Paul's life, right? not, 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 it didn't really go exactly as planned, but he was living for Jesus and he was living a full life. You can trust, though, as you live for Christ, that good will come, that God will bring it about. Romans 8, 28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So no matter what bad thing happens in your life, when you are living according to the will of God and willingly do it, what God does is he makes sure that he know, you know that nothing is beyond redemption, nothing that you have done in the past, nothing that has done to you is beyond redemption. You may have uh, struggles, but he can quell the inner turmoil. And when you know that God is good and life is hard, you can still serve God through it and you can be encouraged by him and you can encourage others in him. I think just on the top of the mind, somebody in our church who is like this is Gloria Miller, who has just been beaten up by cancer. All of her plumbing has been redone, all of those sorts of things. And she gets cancer again. She's in and out of the hospital. And every time somebody gets cancer almost in our church, he's on the phone with them, encouraging them, telling them how good God is because she knows ultimately God gets the victory no matter what happens in her life. You have to surrender to God and trust that God is in work in you. You have the spirit of God. He is in you and he is directing your will. Paul says, it's, I who, it's not I who lives. And so walk according to the spirit of God who is leading you and showing you to Christ. If, he, if he's called you, we talked about generosity. If he's called you to be generous, be generous. If it's towards someone, be generous towards someone. If God puts someone on your mind, reach out to them. I, I, I was telling somebody, the I'd past three weeks have been tough on me. I've been told some things that are just heavy and different things are going on. You know, I heard about Brian. And so it was Thursday, I heard about Brian. And so I get a text Thursday, and that was on top of a bunch of other things going on. I get a text that said somebody said, hey, in my prayer time uh, the other day, the Lord had been telling me to tell you this, and I've put it off until now. I'm sorry for the delay. And he said, stay encouraged. It has been on my mind all day to tell you this. Sorry it took so long to get to you. Right? That's the spirit of God at work in that person. The spirit of God is at work in you. If God prompts you to do it, do it. If God convicts you of sin, repent. If God prompts you to get busy with some type of ministry or some type of work in your life, 
do it. Doing the will of God is a powerful thing, and you experience and you see God at work. To end, here's just what I'm going to challenge you to do. Often life change, regeneration, transformation happens just by making a decision. Just by making a decision. So maybe during the course of this message, something has just come into your mind or into your heart. And you say, God, I've got to willingly give this to you and may not my will be done, but your will be done with this. Think on that and then decide right now to give that to God and to do his will. Decide that now. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning and I really do pray that we are not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then you will be able to attest and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Father, renew our minds and our hearts and our wills. Father, I, I want to do your will. And I know that there are people in this room that want to do your will. And so we ask for your guidance in that. And we pray that you transform ours, that you regenerate our hearts, that we desire and love you more than anything. That you help us to crucify anything that is in us right now, Father, that does not bring you glory, that is not good, that is not pleasing, that is not perfect that is not who you called us to be. I pray that you remind us that we won't get what we want by living for ourselves, that only you satisfy us. I pray that you reveal those deep, those deep parts of our heart and our mind and our will that are hidden from us, that only you see. Change our hearts and minds so that we would correct and willingly follow you. And at this time, Father, before we take communion, I pray that we would think on Christ. A person whose flesh was physically crucified. Who died. So we might put to death our will so that we might become alive to him. The one who was placed on the cross, bled and suffered and then put in the grave and in three, three days rose again so that we might have life. Might we trust that he actually understands what brings us life? And may we live according to his word his way, and his will. We thank you for Jesus. As in Christ's name we pray, amen.